Amen. Well, appreciate it there, James. And everyone else, you got a Bible, James chapter 3 in your Bible. James chapter 3. If you're a guest of ours, welcome. We've been going verse by verse uh, through this awesome letter written by James. And as you open your Bibles up to James chapter 3, let me just begin with a simple statement. There are fewer things more damaging to a church's witness for Jesus than disunity. Fewer things more damaging to a church's witness for Jesus than disunity. We've all seen it before, haven't we? We've heard about churches who have had some chaos going on in them. Uh, This past week I read about a church uh, known as the Holy Creek Congregation. There had been this boiling anger in the church for many, many years. And they were fired up about the location of a piano bench on the stage in worship. And so they began to uh, draw lines in the sand. They actually met together as a church and came up with the idea that they would actually have four separate worship services on Sunday. And each service would have the piano bench placed in the spot where those people wanted it. Isn't that amazing? But that is so true that oftentimes churches get involved with things that make no difference whatsoever for eternity. They are arguing, they're caught up in factions and disagreements which makes no difference for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so what James does this morning is James wants to head off any kind of disunity that these Jewish believers might actually be falling into as a congregation. He could do so, matter of fact, by simply being uh, led by worldly wisdom instead of being guided by godly wisdom. And you know, the Bible teaches that every single one of us are controlled by one of the two. We either are controlled by godly wisdom or by worldly wisdom. And so this morning, James takes us on a journey to discover what kind of wisdom we should desire in our life. So with that in mind, James chapter 3, beginning in verse 13, you can stand with me in honor of God's Word, and you've got it there in front of you, say amen. And notice the rhetorical question he begins with. He says, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering and without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's bow together. Father, we are so thankful for your divine word and would ask that you would use it to wash us clean this morning, that we might reflect more of your son, Jesus Christ. May you place your hand upon our church body. God, we're so grateful for the unity that we are experiencing. But we pray in the name of Jesus that we would walk in love towards one another. That we would allow only godly wisdom to guide our steps. And God, we trust that you will continue to transform us and use us in this community for the sake of your gospel. And we give you glory for it this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. And everybody said, Amen. So you go ahead and be seated. So again, verse 13, he begins, Who among you is wise and understanding? 
You see the word wise there speaks of a person who has practical and skillful knowledge. It's a term used often to describe a person who is a practical teacher. According to the word pictures in the New Testament, the term for understanding speaks of a skilled or scientific person with a tone of superiority. Now James is highlighting some of those within the group of Jewish believers who were chomping at the bit to be teachers. We learned last week in James chapter 3 and verse 1 that James says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. And so James now is writing to individuals saying not everybody who wants to teach should really be teaching. And he's saying that a person who is truly wise will give evidence of that wisdom in their conduct. In fact, after the rhetorical question of verse 13, he answers it and says, Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds and gentleness of wisdom. In other words, those who are wise are not wise because of what they say. They are wise because of what they do. Wisdom is not found merely in a person's conversation. Wisdom is found in a person's conduct. James says, let his deeds, let his workmanship, let his life in humble courtesy to others speak for itself. Wisdom always shows up in a person's conduct. You know, the Lord Jesus Christ preached a sermon on the mount, and at the end of that sermon, he says... Everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them, notice there, you hear it and then you act on it, Jesus says they may be compared to a wise man who has built his house on a rock. So it is not wisdom simply to hear biblical knowledge, nor is it wisdom simply to spout out biblical knowledge with the tongue. Wisdom shows up in the fact that you not only can speak the truth, but you also can live out the truth. And so in our text this morning, James really uh, categorizes two kinds of wisdom. There is worldly wisdom on the one hand, and then there, there is godly wisdom on the other hand. So with that in mind, we're going to see what James has to teach us about wisdom. And here goes the very first thing. Worldly wisdom creates chaos. Worldly wisdom creates chaos. Look in your Bible at verse 14. Scripture says, if you have a bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. Now James notes that bitter jealousy is a sign of worldly wisdom. To be bitter simply means to be cruel. It speaks of possessing a resentful attitude towards someone else. And whenever you take bitterness and jealousy and you mix them together, it is always a recipe for destruction. The jealous person is the one who has an eager rivalry toward another. In this case, it could very well be a person who desired to be the leader, but was not because another person was leading. My mind immediately, when studying this, ran to Numbers chapter 12, where you have the case of Aaron and Miriam. Aaron and Miriam were not excited about Moses' choice in a wife. Moses chose to marry a Cushite woman, and they immediately began to fight against his leadership. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? 
They had this great desire to push themselves in front of the leadership of Moses. They possessed this jealous desire to speak on God's behalf before the people. And as such, they began to make an argument for themselves. So they were like, well, has God only spoke through Moses? He speaks through us too. It didn't last long, though, because God called them to account. We must be very careful. This is a warning for all of us. We must be very careful when there arises in our hearts a desire to lead or a desire to speak or be in charge or to be heard when it is not appointed unto us. And so here in the text, he describes this worldly wisdom as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition run amok. He also notes that selfish ambition walks with worldly wisdom. Now, whenever you think of selfish ambition, ambition is this desire to accomplish something. Now, there's nothing wrong in and of that by itself. But whenever selfishness is attached to it, there is this desire to promote oneself. Matter of fact, this same word is used in the Greco-Roman language to give the idea of electioneering. When a person is running for office and they go around and invite everybody to vote for them. So the idea here is that selfish ambition is causing factions in the context of this body of believers. And they begin to push their personal agendas and then get into pockets of people and try to get them on their side. In fact, those who are led by selfish ambition could very well be heard asking the question, whose side are you on? You know, selfish ambition is like, I want to be known. Selfish ambition says, I want people to talk about how great I am. I want to be the subject of someone's conversation. I'm going to speak up so everybody will know how smart I am. Hey, you think about this. This can show up in your life in many uh, cases, not only in the context of the body of Christ, but how many of you know that this can show up even in the workplace? I remember working at Six Flags over Georgia, my very first job. Y'all with me on that? Say yes. Uh, they gave me a short broom and a dustpan and said, keep it clean. I said, I can do that. But after a little while of sweeping up, I began to realize the foreman wasn't near as smart as I was. Y'all all right with that? And so I remember him giving orders to us in the morning, and I used to think to myself, who in the world does this guy think he is? Man, he don't know what he's talking about. And maybe I ought to be in charge. Well, if I really... Uh, get serious about that particular day uh, that is a day in my life where selfish ambition was taking place in my heart where I was being led by worldly wisdom and James says in this text of scripture do not be arrogant that is don't be so full of yourself that you actually lie against the truth Charles Erdman describes these kinds of people as quote self-appointed teachers who were proud of boasted knowledge who were fond of dispute, who were bitter in their discussions, who were more eager to defeat their opponents than to establish the truth, end quote. Now, this kind of attitude is very easy to fall into. In fact, Paul the Apostle dealt with two ladies at the church at Philippi whose names were Yodia and Syntyche. Those are precious names, aren't they? If we ever have twins, that's what we're going to name our twin girls, Yodia and Syntyche. But these two ladies apparently had 
some difficulties with one another in the church and they begin to argue and cause faction. And so Paul the Apostle writes concerning these two ladies saying, I urge you to live in harmony in the Lord. They were allowing a matter in their life to cause disruption in the context of the body of the church at Philippi. And so Paul calls them to account. He urges them to live in harmony. Matter of fact, if you think about these two ladies, I read it one time that they would rather be right than be Christian. If you ever find yourself in an argument or in a dispute or in a time frame where you are pushing your agenda forward and you would rather be right than show Christian virtues, there is a selfish ambition, a problem. A worldly wisdom is guiding your heart. Now, James goes on and describes worldly wisdom in verse 15. He says, this wisdom is not that which comes down from above. In other words, this kind of attitude is not from God. He's saying this kind of conduct is not from heaven. And then he goes on and describes it in three uh, staccato-style statements. He says this wisdom is earthly. One commentator noted this kind of wisdom has the world as its boundaries. This kind of wisdom does not consider eternity. Now, all of us have heard about churches who have had arguments and fights in the past. You might even be able to describe some. Maybe you've even been a part of some. But isn't it true that oftentimes when these particular squabbles begin to happen in the context of a local body of believers, there are groups of people who are not considered one iota of eternity and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are driven by natural, earthly pleasures. And you see here, he describes it as natural. This kind of wisdom is only fueled by personal desires and ambition. And then James drops the bombshell in the room. Now, this kind of wisdom is demonic. It's demonic. The devil very well is pulling at the temptation strings of a person who is quick to dispute and filled with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Now, I would encourage you this morning, as you think through this particular text of Scripture, to make sure you're not being led by worldly wisdom. Worldly wisdom always brings about chaos. Look at verse 16 in your Bible. The scripture says, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Now, the byproduct of those who exercise worldly wisdom is disunity as well as instability. Worldly wisdom produces nothing of eternal significance or value, but only that which is worthless. Now you can imagine what the scene would have been like as they gathered to worship together those that James is writing to. They would have come together and many of them would have been vying for attention. They perhaps were raising their hand wanting to teach or wanting to take the lead or orchestrate the group. They would speak up about what they thought on a matter. And then before you know it, another person would speak up about what they thought on a matter. And then there was a duel of egos in the room. And before you know it, there's an argument that occurs, a total loss of focus on the mission of the church, which is to make disciples everywhere. And isn't that true? Many churches are not involved in the mission because they are squabbling over things that make no difference for eternity. And what a shame that those who claim to know Jesus Christ will be caught up in such worldliness. I remember pastoring uh, for the very first time and I wasn't there very long, and 
fall festival was coming around the corner and typically in the past the church just had fall festival for the church but then they decided we'd have it for the entire community there and so i kind of encourage everybody let's invite you know unbelievers let's get some folks in here who don't know jesus let's share the gospel with them so that they can be saved and everybody agreed so we started kind of going in that particular direction but then all of a sudden it didn't take long for some squabbles to come alive in the context of that fall festival and one of the squabbles and i feel like i may have used this story before so if i have pretend you're here for the first time but I remember there was a squabble over what kind of hot dogs we were going to serve at the fall festival. Isn't that amazing? Uh, now, I, I kid you not, I literally had people making appointments with me in the office to come and to talk to me about what kind of hot dogs we were going to serve at the fall festival. One lady told me she was not coming to the fall festival unless we served all beef hot dogs. Are y'all listening? Isn't it amazing, though, how the enemy can just squeak right in and get people's attitudes and minds and everything in the whole wide world focused on things that make no difference for eternity? I care less what kind of hot dogs we're going to serve. Y'all all right? The question is whether or not we're going to be a light for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. People are dying and going to hell, and we're talking about hot dogs. But how many churches gather together and talk about hot dogs? Y'all out there? Come on now, don't act like I ain't preaching. Wisdom creates chaos. Always does. This kind of worldly wisdom. Now, he goes a step further and he speaks of godly wisdom. And I like this. Godly wisdom creates peace. Godly wisdom creates peace. Look at verse 17 in your Bible. Scripture says, but the wisdom from above is first pure. Above all, godly wisdom is holy. And the reason that godly wisdom is holy is because it comes from God. And God is holy. Godly wisdom possesses no ill will, no selfish ambition. There's no hidden agenda, no evil motive fueling godly wisdom. That's why godly wisdom is described as peaceable. Uh, godly wisdom is motivated by bringing about peace to a situation, not chaos and confusion. And James notes as well that godly wisdom is gentle. Uh, gentle in the sense that it is not rambunctious, not overtly aggressive, not filled with anger. Paul wrote to the church at Philippi in the same context of speaking with those two ladies who were in disharmony. Listen to what he says to them. He says, let your gentle spirit be made known to all men. You know, one commentator noted about gentleness. It's not combative or abrasive. And I read this a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 18. There's one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now you think about that for just a moment. There are individuals, whenever they speak, it's like stabbing people with a sword. And isn't it true that's the whole context of James chapter 3 as he warns us to tame our tongues? And so here in Proverbs, we're even reminded, be careful how you speak. You can be cutting people up as opposed to bringing healing and peace. James says godly wisdom is reasonable as well reasonable in the sense that it doesn't insist on personal rights or always getting its own way and notice also james describes godly wisdom as full of mercy and good fruits now think about that godly wisdom shows compassion to the needs of others and if a person does not show compassion to others they are not being led by godly wisdom a person's fruit that is, what their lives bear give evidence of whether or not they are being led by godly wisdom. I've thought about 
the fruit of the Spirit described in Galatians chapter 5. Are these true in your life? Is there love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? See, where you and I find these actions, where we find these attributes in a person's life, we find someone who is being led by godly wisdom. Now, this scripture also describes godly wisdom as unwavering. It means to be impartial, speaks of not showing favoritism. So this could be James actually pointing back to how people treated both poor and rich folk whenever they came into their times of worship. Godly wisdom seeks to treat everyone the same. Godly wisdom is without hypocrisy, James says. That speaks of someone who is genuine. They're not putting on a show. And then verse 18 are y'all with me say yes not putting on a show listen you you can overwhelmingly display christian virtues when you come to church it is amazing how a man and a woman can tame their tongue when they show up to church it is amazing how you can actually keep your conduct in check when you are at church but godly wisdom means that throughout monday through saturday you are taming your tongue Throughout Monday through Saturday, you are living conduct that is becoming of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is godly. And that's what he says. You will be full of compassion. You'll be full of good fruits. In other words, godly wisdom shows up in a person's life. They are genuine. They're not hypocrites. Now look at verse 18. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And here James is simply stating that those who live rightly do so because they're seeking peace with other people. Now listen, it is in this kind of environment, a kind of environment where godly wisdom is taking the lead, that Christ followers can actually thrive as a group of people. So really, we have to ask, when we think about how we are living, what are we creating? Are we creating chaos or are we creating peace? You know, this principle is not only true in the life of a local fellowship, but this principle could also be true in your home. And think about it. Husband and wife, marriages that are experiencing chaos, that is not godly wisdom leading that marriage. That is worldly wisdom. Uh, that is why so often the man may say cutting remarks to his spouse or the spouse may say some uh, cutting remarks to the husband. There is this faction right down the middle, this husband who is bitter against the wife, this wife who is jealous against the husband. And this argument ensues. This happens in the home. There is no peace there. It is only chaos. And it is because someone is being led by ungodly wisdom, worldly wisdom. You think about any pastor who's on staff at a church who has the uh, uh, opportunity to speak to husbands and wives for counseling. It does not take long to find chaos. It does not take long to find that someone in the marriage relationship, typically both of them, y'all all right, in case y'all are curious, are being led by selfishness, bitterness. And there's that division. But look, look, check this out. But when you are led by godly wisdom, uh, you are not seeking your best interest, but the interest of your spouse. 
You are loving her like Christ loved the church. You, ma'am, are submitting to his leadership just as the church should submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. And whenever you have this going on in the context of a home, there is not chaos. There is peace. What's going on in your house? Is there chaos? Or is there peace? This could also be true of your relationships in the workplace. When you show up in the workplace, are you creating chaos or peace? That principle just applies, doesn't it? Are you looking at the manager where you work saying, this guy or this gal has no clue what they're talking about. I ought to be in. Somebody ought to ask me what I think because I'm the one who's actually doing all the work anyway. Somebody talk to me. Y'all all all right? Can y'all tell I've done that before? I got riled up, didn't I? That's creating chaos. It's not being led by godly wisdom. That is worldly wisdom. You know, it's interesting. These principles not only apply to the church, but they apply to so many relationships that you have in your life. What are you producing? Chaos or peace? Whichever the answer is gives evidence of what kind of wisdom is actually leading and guiding your life. Now, I will say to you this morning, it is a funny thing being the pastor of a church. Y'all might want to write that down and quote me when I'm gone and dead. You know what I'm saying? It's a funny thing. You know why it's funny? Because I I know what I'm getting up to preach on. Last week, I preached on the tongue. And I got up here and I preached as hard as I could because that's what James did. And now this morning, I'm preaching on this idea of unity in the body. And the reason that pastoring is a funny thing is because I know there are probably some people sitting in the pews thinking, Who does Levi have in mind? The good news is I've written them all down. <laughs> Got nobody in mind. Now, the great news this morning is that our fellowship here at Concord is actually experiencing peace. And I get fired up about stuff like this. It is in that context where we see God work. It's in that context where we see people come to faith in Jesus Christ, where people join our church body, where people are growing in their relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is in that context of peace. Now, I get fired up about that, but also need to make sure there is a strong warning to our church body concerning this. Where Jesus is being glorified, the devil is roaring like a lion. He is secretly looking for someone to devour. The enemy can begin to literally tempt someone to step up and to cause disunity. So you and I, by all means, must live in unity with one another. When we do this, God is glorified. Because it is by this love and unity that we have for one another that we show we are actually disciples of Jesus Christ. And listen, listen. In the community, the enemy will love, love it. Some crazy stuff could go on at any church, but even at Concord. enemy would love that. I studied lines once. Whenever a lion actually catches its prey, you know what the lion does? Prior to catching its prey, it's very quiet. Then it pounces on its prey, it kills its prey, and then it lets out a large roar. So everybody in the jungle knows what's going down. That's how the enemy is. He secretly gets into the context of a local fellowship. 
It tempts people. Uh, people then are driven by selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, whatever the case may be, anger. They sprout up, begin to argue over things that make no difference for eternity. And then before you know it, a faction, maybe down the middle, maybe four ways, and the church is all in arms arguing with each other, and the enemy has pounced, and then, listen, then he roars. So everybody, look over here. Man, we don't want to be a part of that, do we? That was a question y'all should have answered. We don't want to be a part of that, do we? No, 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 not at all. Now today as we gather to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of our great need for unity in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus gave his life for us that we might be free from worldly wisdom. And we might be free from selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. Jesus gave his life for us that we might become members of his body, the church. And in unity this morning, we're reminded of what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, whenever we gather together to take the Lord's Supper, it is a sacred time when we remember the price that Jesus paid for our forgiveness. We remember that he died on a cross we're remembering how he died willingly showing his love toward us we remember why he died for our sins and that one verse in isaiah chapter 53 always strikes a chord with me where the bible says that it actually pleased the lord to crush him think about that jesus on the cross being crushed brings pleasure to god how in the world it does because God, the Father, has pent up wrath towards your sin and mine. Every thought, every word, and every deed. But over 2,000 years ago on the cross at Calvary, Jesus willingly offered himself up. And God let loose the wrath that he had been holding upon his son Jesus. And Jesus there on the cross at Calvary was a sacrifice before Almighty God. And his death was like sweet aroma into the portals of heaven. The Bible says he became sin for you. And we eat this morning, reminding ourselves of all that he has done. And before we eat, it's a time for you to actually take inventory of our lives. Paul, again, writing to the Corinthian church, says, But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Check this out. Examine himself. That means uh, to scrutinize yourself. Not everybody else, but you. Putting yourself under a microscope. Lord, is there anything in my life that needs to be repented of? Confessed as sin. Any motive? Any attitude towards the Lord and His Word? Towards His people? Toward the service itself? Should all come under private scrutiny before Jesus? So before we take this Lord's Supper together... Spend some time doing just that. Your heads bowed, your eyes closed.